10. The provincials, less than half of them ever saw their homes again. The loss of the enemy was probably still heavier. General Herkimer died 10 days after the battle. The militia, despite the well-laid ambuscade into which they had marched, were the victors, but they had been so severely handled that they were unable to accomplish their design. The relief of the fort, as for the garrison, they had not been idle during the battle. The sound of the combat had been borne to their ears, and immediately after the cessation of the rain Colonel Willett made a sally from the fort, at the head of 250 men. The camp of the enemy had been depleted for the battle, and the sortie proved highly successful. The remnants of Johnson's regiment were soon driven from their camp. The Indian encampment beyond was demolished, its savage guards flying in terror from the devil, by which expressive name they called Colonel Willett. Wagons were hurried from the fort, camp equipage, British flags, papers, and the effects of the officers loaded into them, and 21 loads of this full spoil triumphantly carried off. As the victorious force was returning, Colonel Streetlegger appeared, with a strong body of men, across the river, just in time to be saluted by a shower of bullets, the provincials then retiring, without the loss of a man, the setting sun that day cast its last rays on five British standards, displayed from the walls of the fort, with the stars and stripes floating proudly above them, the day had ended triumphantly for the provincials, though it proved unsuccessful in its main object, for the fort was still invested, and the rescuing force were in no condition to come to its aid. The investment, indeed, was so close that the garrison knew nothing of the result of the battle. St. Legger took advantage of this, and sent a white flag to the fort with false information, declaring that the relief party had been annihilated, that Perwine had reached and captured Albany, and that, unless the fort was surrendered, he could not much longer restrain the Indians from devastating the valley settlements with fire and tomahawk. The story Gonsevoort did not half believe, and answered the messenger with words of severe reprobation for his threat of an Indian foray. After you get out of this fort, he concluded, you may turn around and look at its outside, but never expect to come in again, unless as a prisoner, before I would consent to deliver this garrison to such a murdering set as your army, by your own account consists of, I would suffer my body to be filled with splinters and set on fire, as you know has at times been practiced by such hordes of women and children killers as belong to your army, after such a message there was no longer question of surrender, and the siege was strongly pushed, the enemy, finding that their guns had little effect on the sod work of the fort, began a series of approaches by sapping and mining, Colonel Gonsevoort, on his part, took an important step, Fearing that his stock of food and ammunition might give out, he determined to send a message to General Schuyler, asking for succor. Colonel Willett volunteered for the service, Lieutenant Stockwell joining him. The night chosen was a dark and stormy one. Shower followed shower. The sentinels of the enemy were not likely to be on the alert, leaving the fort at the Sully Port at 10 o'clock. The two messengers crept on hands and knees along a morass till they reached the river. This they crossed on a log and entered a dense wood which lay beyond. No sentinel had seen them, but they lost their way in the darkness, and straggled on blindly until the barking of a dog told them that they were near an Indian camp. Progress was now dangerous. Advance or retreat alike might throw them into the hands of the savage foe. For several hours they stood still, in a most annoying and perilous situation. The night passed, dawn was at hand, fortunately now the clouds broke the morning star shone in the east and with this as a guide they resumed their journey. Their expedition was still a dangerous one. 
the enemy might strike their trail in the morning light. To break this they now and then walked in the bed of a stream. They had set out on the night of the 10th. All day of the 11th they pushed on, with a small store of crackers and cheese as their only food. Another night and day passed. On the afternoon of the 12th, nearly worn out with hardship, they reached the settlement of the German flats. Here horses were procured, and they rode at full speed to General Schuyler's headquarters at Stillwater. Schuyler had already heard of Herkimer's failure, and was laying plans for the relief of the fort. His purpose was opposed by many of his officers, who were filled with fear of the coming of Burwine. Schuyler was pacing the floor in anxious thought when he heard the low remark. He means to awaken the army. Schuyler turned towards the speaker, so angry that he bent into pieces a pipe he was smoking, and exclaimed, Gentlemen, I shall take the responsibility, where is the brigadier that will take command of the relief? I shall beat up for volunteers tomorrow. General Arnold, one of the boldest and most impulsive men in the army, immediately asked for the command. The next morning the drums beat, and before noon 800 volunteers were enrolled. Arnold at once advanced, but, feeling that his force was too weak, stopped at Fort Date until reinforcements could reach him. And now occurred one of the most striking events in the history of the war, that of the defeat of an invading army by stratagem without sight of soldier or musket. It is to be told from two points of view, that of the garrison, and that of the army of relief. As regards the garrison, its situation was becoming critical. St. Leger's parallels were approaching the fort. The store of provisions was running low. Many of the garrison began to hint at surrender, fearing massacre by the Indians should the fort be taken by assault. Gonsevoort, despairing of further successful resistance, had decided upon a desperate attempt to cut through the enemy's lines. Suddenly, on the 22d, there came a sudden lull in the siege. The guns ceased their fire, quick and confused movements could be seen, there were signs of flight. Away went the besiegers, Indians and whites alike, in panic disarray, and with such haste that their tents, artillery, and camp equipage were left behind. The astonished garrison sallied forth to find not a foeman in the field, yet not a sign to show what mysterious influence had caused this headlong flight. It was not from the face of an enemy, for no enemy was visible, and the mystery was too deep for the garrison to fathom. To learn the cause of this strange event we must return to Arnold and his stratagem. He had, on learning the peril of the fort, been about to advance despite the smallness of his force, when an opportunity occurred to send terror in advance of his march. There were in his hands several Tory prisoners, among them an ignorant, coarse, half-idiotic fellow named Han Yost Schuyler, who had been condemned to death for treason. His mother pleaded for his life, casting herself on her knees before Arnold, and imploring for her son with tears and entreaties. She found him at first inexorable, but he changed his tone and appeared to soften as a fortunate idea came to his mind. Her son's life should be spared, but upon conditions, these were that he should go to Fort Schuyler and, by stories of the immense force upon the march, endeavor to alarm St. Leger. Han Yost readily consented, leaving his brother as a hostage in Arnold's hands. The seemingly foolish fellow was far from being an idiot. Before leaving the camp he had several bullet holes shot through his coat. He arranged also with a friendly Oneida Indian to follow and confirm his tale. Thus prepared, he set out for Street Leger's camp, reaching it. He ran breathlessly among the Indians, seemingly in a state of terror. Many of the savages knew him, and he was eagerly questioned as to what had happened. The Americans were coming, he replied, numbers of them, hosts of them, he had barely escaped with his life, 
He had been riddled with bullets. He wanted to his coat in evidence. How many were there? He was asked. Han Yost, in reply, shook his head mysteriously, and plonked to the leaves on the trees. His seeming alarm communicated itself to the Indians. They had been severely dealt with at Oriskany. The present siege dragged on. They were dissatisfied. While the chiefs debated and talked of flight, the Oneida appeared with several others of his tribe whom he had picked up on the way. These told the same story. A bird had brought them the news. The valley was swarming with soldiers. The army of Burwine had been cut to pieces, said one. Arnold had three thousand men, said another. Others plonked to the leaves, as Han Yost had done, and meaningly shook their heads. The panic spread among the Indians. St. Lager stormed at them, Johnson pleaded with them, but all in vain. Drink was offered them, but they refused it. The POW allow said we must go, was their answer to every remonstrance. And go they did. You said there would be no fighting for us Indians, said a chief. We might go down and smoke our pipes, but many of our warriors have been killed, and you mean to sacrifice us all. Oaths and persuasions proved alike useless. The council broke up and the Indians took to flight. Their panic communicated itself to the whites, dropping everything but their muskets. They fled in terror for their boats on Oneida Lake, with such haste that many of them threw away arms and knapsacks in their mad flight. The Indians, who had started the panic, grew merry on seeing the wild terror of their late allies. They ran behind them, shouting, They are coming! They are coming! And thus added wings to their flight. They robbed, stripped, and even killed many of them, plundered them of their boats, and proved a more formidable foe than the enemy from whom they fled, half-starved and empty-handed. The whites hurried to Oswego and took boat on the lake for Montreal, while their Indian allies, who had proved of more harm than good, went merrily home to their villages, looking upon the flight as a stupendous joke. When Arnold, hearing of what had happened, hurried to the fort, the enemy had utterly vanished, except a few whom Gonsevoort's men had brought in as prisoners. Han Yost soon came back, having taken the first opportunity to slip away from the flying horde. He had amply won his pardon. Thus ended the siege of Fort Schuyler, in its way. Considering the numbers engaged, the most desperate and bloody struggle of the revolution, and of the greatest utility as an aid to the subsequent defeat of Burwine. As regards its singular termination, it is without parallel in the history of American wars. Han Yost had proved himself the most surprising idiot on record, on the track of a traitor, while Major Henri was dying the death of a spy. General Arnold, his tempter and betrayer, was living the life of a cherished traitor, in the midst of the British army at New York. This was a state of affairs far from satisfactory to the American authorities. The tool had suffered, the schemer had escaped. Could Arnold be captured, and made to pay the penalty of his treason? It would be a sharp lesson of retribution to any who might feel disposed to follow his base example. Washington had his secret correspondence in New York, and from them had learned that Arnold was living in quarters adjoining those of Sir Henry Clinton, at but a short distance from the river and apparently with no thought of or precaution against danger, it might be possible to seize him and carry him away bodily from the midst of his new friends, sending for Major Henry Lee, a brave and shrewd cavalry leader. Washington broached to him this important matter, and submitted a plan of action which seemed to him to promise success. It is a delicate and dangerous project, he said. Much depends on our finding an agent fit for such hazardous work. You may have the man in your corps. Whoever volunteers for this duty will lay me under the greatest personal obligation, and may expect an ample reward. 
but no time is to be lost. He must proceed, if possible, tonight. Not only courage and daring, but very peculiar talent, are needed for such an enterprise, said Lee. I have plenty of brave men, but can think of only one whom I can recommend for such a duty as this. His name is John Champ, his rank, Sergeant Major, but there is one serious obstacle in the way. He must appear too desert, and I fear that Champ has too high a sense of military honor for that. Try him, said Washington. The service he will do to his country far outweighs anything he can do in the ranks. Rumor says that other officers of high rank are ready to follow Arnold's example. If we can punish this traitor, he will have no imitators. I can try, answered Lee. I may succeed. Champ is not without ambition, and the object to be attained is a great one. I may safely promise him the promotion which he ardently desires. That will be but part of his reward, said Washington. Lee sent for Champ. There entered in response a young man, large and muscular of build, saturnine of countenance, a grave, thoughtful, silent person, safe to trust with a secret, for his words were few, his sense of honor high. In all the army there was not his superior in courage and persistence in anything he should undertake. It was no agreeable surprise to the worthy fellow to learn what he was desired to do. The plan was an admirable one, he admitted, it promised the best results. He did not care for peril, and was ready to venture on anything that would not involve his honor, but to desert from his corps, to win the scorn and detestation of his fellows, to seem to play the traitor to his country. These were serious obstacles. He begged to be excused. Lee combated his objections. Success promised honor to himself and to his corps, the gratitude of his country, the greatest service to his beloved commander-in-chief. Desertion, for such a purpose, carried with it no dishonor and any stain upon his character would vanish when the truth became known. The conference was a long one, in the end Lee's arguments proved efficacious, Champ yielded, and promised to undertake the mission. The necessary instructions had already been prepared by Washington himself. The chosen agent was to deliver letters to two persons in New York, who were in Washington's confidence, and who would lend him their assistance. He was to use his own judgment in procuring aid for the capture of Arnold and to allay such plans as circumstances should suggest, and he was strictly enjoined not to kill the traitor under any circumstances. All this settled, the question of the difficulties in the way arose. Between the American camp and the British outpost were many pickets and patrols. Parties of marauding patriots, like those that had seized on her, he might be in the way. Against these Lee could offer no aid. The desertion must seem a real one. All he could do would be to delay pursuit. For the rest. Champ must trust to his own skill and daring. Eleven o'clock was the hour fixed. At that hour the worthy sergeant, taking his cloak, valise, and orderly book, and with three guineas in his pocket, which Lee had given him, secretly mounted his horse and slipped quietly from the camp. Lee immediately went to bed, and seemingly to sleep, though he had never been more wide awake. A half-hour passed. Then a heavy tread was heard outside the major's quarters, and a loud knock came upon his door. It was some time before he could be aroused. Who was there? He asked, in sleepy tones. It is I Captain Carnes, was the reply. I am here for orders. One of our patrols has just fallen in with a dragoon, who put spurs to his horse on being challenged, and fled at full speed. He is a deserter, and must be pursued. Lee still seemed half asleep. He questioned the officer in a drowsy way, affecting not to understand him. When at length the captain's purpose was made clear to his seemingly drowsy wits, 
Lee ridiculed the idea that one of his men had deserted. Such a thing had happened but once during the whole war. He could not believe it possible. It has happened now, persisted Captain Carnes. The fellow is a deserter, and must be pursued. Lee still affected incredulity, and was with difficulty brought to order that the whole squadron should be mustered, to see if any of them were missing. This done, there was no longer room for doubt or delay. Champ, the sergeant major, was gone, and with him his arms, baggage, and orderly book. Captain Carnes ordered that pursuit should be made at once. Here, too, Lee made such delay as he could without arousing suspicion, and when the pursuing party was ready he changed its command, giving it to a Lieutenant Middleton, a tender-heart young man, whom he could trust to treat Champ mercifully if he should be overtaken. These various delays had the desired effect. By the time the party started, Champ had been an hour on the road. It was past twelve o'clock of a starry night when Middleton and his men took to horse, and galloped away on the track of the deserter. It was a plain track, and luckily, a trail that a child might have followed. There had been a shower at sunset, sharp enough to wash out all previous hoof marks from the road. The footprints of a single horse were all that now appeared. In addition to this, the horseshoes of Lee's legion had a private mark, by which they could be readily recognized. There could be no question. Those footprints were made by the horse of the deserter. Here was a contingency unlooked for by Lee. The pursuit could be pushed on at full speed. At every fork or crossroad a trooper sprang quickly from his horse and examined the trail. It needed but a glance to discover what road had been taken. On they went, with scarce a moment's loss of time, and with sure knowledge that they were on the fugitive's track. At sunrise the pursuing party found themselves at the top of a ridge in the road, near the three pigeons a roadside tavern several miles north of the village of Bergen. Looking ahead, their eyes fell on the form of the deserter. He was but half a mile in advance. They had gained on him greatly during the night. At the same moment Champ perceived them. Both parties spurred their horses to greater speed, and away went fugitive and pursuers at a rattling pace. The roads in that vicinity were well known to them all. There was a short cut through the woods from near the three pigeons to the bridge below Bergen. Middleton sent part of his men by this route to cut off the fugitive, while he followed the main road with the rest. He felt sure now that he had the deserter, for he could not reach the British outposts without crossing the bridge. On they went. No long time elapsed before the two divisions met at the bridge, but Champ was not between them. The trap had been sprung, but had failed to catch its game. He had in some strange manner disappeared. What was to be done? How had he eluded them? Middleton rode hastily back to Bergen, and inquired if the dragoon had passed through the village that morning. Yes, and not long ago. Which way did he go? That we cannot say. No one took notice. Middleton examined the road. Other horses had been out that morning, and the leak or footprint was no longer to be seen. But at a short distance from the village the trail again became legible and the pursuit was resumed. In a few minutes Champ was discovered. He had reached a point near the water's edge and was making signals to certain British galleys which lay in the stream. The truth was that the fugitive knew of the shortcut quite as well as his pursuers, and had shrewdly judged that they would take it, and endeavor to cut him off before he could reach the enemy's lines at Paul's hook. He knew, besides, that two of the king's galleys lay in the bay, a mile from Bergen, and in front of the small settlement of Comunipa. Hither he directed his course, lashing his valise, as he went, upon his back. Champ now found himself in imminent peril of capture. There had been no response from the galleys to his signals. The pursuers were close at hand, 
and pushing forward with shouts of triumph. Soon they were but a few hundred yards away. There was but one hope left. Champ sprang from his horse, flung away the scabbard of his sword, and with the naked blade in his hand ran across the marshy ground before him, leaped into the waters of the bay, and swam lustily for the galleys, calling loudly for help. A boat had just before left the side of the nearest galley, as the pursuers reined up their horses by the side of the marsh. The fugitive was hauled in and was swiftly rowed back to the ship. Middleton, disappointed in his main object, took the horse, cloak, and scabbard of the fugitive and returned with them to camp. He has not been killed, asked Lee, hastily, on seeing these articles. No, the rascal gave us the slip. He is safely on a British galley, and this is all we have to show. A few days afterwards Lee received a letter from Champ, in a disguised hand and without signature transmitted through a secret channel which had been arranged, telling of his success up to this point, and what he proposed to do. As it appeared, the seeming deserter had been well received in New York. The sharpness of the pursuit and the orderly book which he bore seemed satisfactory proofs of his sincerity of purpose. The captain of the galley sent him to New York, with a letter to Sir Henry Clinton. Clinton was glad to see him for a deserter to come to him from a legion so faithful to the rebel cause as that of Major Lee seemed in evidence that the American side was rapidly weakening. He questioned Champ closely. The taciturn deserter answered him briefly, but with such a show of sincerity as to win his confidence. The interview ended in Clinton's giving him a couple of guineas, and bidding him to call on General Arnold, who was forming a corps of loyalists and deserters, and who would be glad to have his name on his rolls. This suggestion hit Champ's views exactly. It was what had been calculated upon by Washington in advance. The seeming deserter called upon Arnold, who received him courteously, and gave him quarters among his recruiting sergeants. He asked him to join his legion, but Champ declined, saying that if caught by the rebels in the score he was sure to be hanged. A few days sufficed the secret agent to allay his plans. He delivered the letters which had been given him and made arrangements with one of the parties written to foray in the proposed abduction of Arnold. This done, he went to Arnold, told him that he had changed his mind, and agreed to enlist in his legion. His purpose now was to gain free intercourse with him, that he might learn all that was possible about his habits. Arnold's quarters were at number 3 Broadway. Back of the house was a garden, which extended towards the water's edge. Champ soon learned that it was Arnold's habit to seek his quarters about midnight and that before going to bed he always visited the garden. Adjoining this garden was a dark alley, which led to the street. In short, all the surroundings and circumstances were adapted to the design, and seemed to promise success. The plan was well laid. Two patriotic accomplices were found. One of them was to have a boat in readiness by the riverside. On the night fixed upon they were to conceal themselves in Arnold's garden at midnight. Seize and bagged him when he came out for his nightly walk and take him by way of the alley, and of unfrequented streets in the vicinity, to the adjoining riverside, in case of meeting anyone and being questioned, it was arranged that they should profess to be carrying a drunken soldier to the guardhouse, once in the boat, Hoboken could quickly be reached, here assistance from Lee's corps had been arranged for, the plot was a promising one, Champ prepared for it by removing some of the palings between the garden and the alley, these he replaced in such a way that they could be taken out again without noise. All being arranged, he wrote to Ali, and told him that on the third night from that date, if all went well, the traitor would be delivered upon the Jersey shore. He must be present, at an appointed place in the woods at Hoboken, to receive him. 
This information gave Lee the greatest satisfaction. On the night in question he left camp with a small party, taking with him three led horses, for the prisoner and his captors, and at midnight sought the appointed spot. Here he waked with slowly declining hope. Hour after hour passed, the gray light of dawn appeared in the east, the sun rose over the waters, yet Champ and his prisoner failed to appear. Deeply disappointed, Lee led his party back to camp. The cause of the failure may be told in a few words. It was a simple one. The merest chance saved Arnold from the fate which he so richly merited. This was, that on the very day which Champ had fixed for the execution of his plot, Arnold changed his quarters his purpose being to attend to the embarkation of an expedition to the south, which was to be under his command. In a few days Lee received a letter from his agent, telling the cause of failure, and saying that, at present, success was hopeless. In fact, Champ found himself unexpectedly in an awkward situation. Arnold's American Legion was to form part of this expedition. Champ had enlisted in it. He was caught in a trap of his own setting, instead of crossing the Hudson that night. With Arnold as his prisoner, he found himself on board a British transport. With Arnold as his commander, he was in for the war on the British side, forced to face his fellow countrymen in the field. We need not tell the story of Arnold's expedition to Virginia, with the brutal incidents which history relates concerning it. It will suffice to say that Champ formed part of it, all his efforts to desert proving fruitless. It may safely be said that no bullet from his musket reached the American ranks but he was forced to brave death from the hands of those with whom alone he was in sympathy. Not until Arnold's corps had joined Cornwallis at Petersburg did its unwilling recruits succeed in escaping. Taking to the mountains he made his way into North Carolina, and was not long in finding himself among friends. His old corps was in that state, taking part in the pursuit of Lord Rawdon. It had just passed the Congaree in this pursuit when, greatly to the surprise of his old comrades, the deserter appeared in their ranks. Their surprise was redoubled when they saw Major Lee receive him with the utmost cordiality. A few minutes sufficed to change their surprise to admiration. There was no longer occasion for secrecy. Champ's story was told, and was received with the utmost enthusiasm by his old comrades. So this was the man they had pursued so closely. This man who had been seeking to put the arch-traitor within their hands. John Champ, they declared, was a comrade to be proud of and his promotion to a higher rank was the plain duty of the military authorities. Washington knew too well, however, what would be the fate of his late agent, if taken by the enemy, to subject him to this peril, he would have been immediately hanged. Champ was, therefore, discharged from the service, after having been richly rewarded by the commander-in-chief. When Washington, 17 years afterwards, was preparing against a threatened war with the French, he sent to Ali for information about Champ whom he desired to make a captain of infantry. He was too late. The gallant sergeant major had joined a higher corps. He had enlisted in the Grand Army of the Dead. Marion, the Swamp Fox. Our story takes us back to the summer of 1780. A summer of war, suffering, and outrage in the states of the South. General Gates, at the head of the Army of the South, was marching towards Camden, South Carolina, filled with inflated hopes of meeting and defeating Cornwallis how this hopeful general was himself defeated, and how, in consequence, the whole country south of Virginia fell under British control. History relates, we are not here concerned with it. Gates's army had crossed the Petey River and was pushing southward. During its march a circumstance occurred which gave great amusement to the trim soldiery. There joined the army a volunteer detachment of about 20 men, 
such a heterogeneous and woebegone corps that Falstaff himself might have hesitated before enlisting them. They were a mosaic of whites and blacks, men and boys, their clothes tatters, their equipments burlesques on military array, their horses for they were all mounted parodies on the noble war charger. At the head of this motley array was a small-sized, thin-faced, modest-looking man, his uniform superior to that of his men, but no model of neatness, yet with a flashing spirit in his eye that admonished the amused soldiers not to laugh at his men in his presence. Behind his back they laughed enough. The PD volunteers were a source of ridicule to the well-clad continentals that might have caused trouble had not the officers used every effort to repress it. As for Gates, he offered no welcome to this ragged squad. The leader modestly offered him some advice about the military condition of the South, but the general in command was clothed into dense and armor of conceit to be open to advice from any quarter, certainly not from the leader of such a Falstaffian company, and he was glad enough to get rid of him by sending him on a scouting expedition in advance of the army, to watch the enemy and report his movements. The service precisely sweeped him to whom it was given, for the small, non-intrusive personage was no less a man than Francis Marion, then but little known, but destined to become the Robin Hood of partisan warriors, the celebrated Swamp Fox of historical romance and romantic history. Marion had appeared with the title of Colonel. He left the army with the rank of General. Governor Rutledge, who was present, knew him and his worth, gave him a brigadier's commission, and authorized him to enlist a brigade for guerrilla work in the swamps and forests of the state. Thus raised in rank, Marion marched away with his motley crew of followers. They doubtless greatly elevated in dignity to feel that they had a general at their head. The army indulged in a broad laugh. After they had gone, at Marion's miniature brigade of scarecrows, they laughed at the wrong man. For after their proud array was broken and scattered to the winds, and the region they had marched to relieve had become the prey of the enemy, that modest partisan alone was to keep alive the fire of liberty in South Carolina and so annoy the victors that in the end they hardly dared show their